Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. July 4, 1776. A group of politicians, philosophical thinkers, and army generals gather around a table, waiting to sign the document that will give birth to a new nation. Of the 56 men that will put their signatures on the Declaration of Independence, nine of them share a secret. They belong to one of the world's oldest, most discreet organizations. These men are Freemasons. They come from a long-standing tradition of secret rituals, symbolism, and knowledge. And they swear to build this new nation on Masonic ideals. Most of the men present had no idea that over the next 200 years, Freemasons would control the most powerful nation on Earth and use a fledgling government as their own personal playground. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults from the Parcast Network. Today, we continue our deep dive into the history of the Freemasons, perhaps the world's oldest and largest secret organization. In this episode, we'll follow the Freemasons as they evolve over two centuries of turmoil wrapped in controversy, witchcraft, even murder. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Freemasonry most likely began in medieval Europe with a group of traveling construction workers. They banded together to create a union that would secure fair wages and regulate the practice of their trade. But even these humble beginnings are wrapped in conspiracy. Many believe that Freemasonry dates back to much later, to biblical times, at the construction of King Solomon's temple— Still others believe that Freemasonry can trace its roots back to the Crusades of the Knights Templar in the 12th century. Historians collectively believe that in all likelihood, Freemasonry evolved out of these construction workers in the 12th and 13th centuries. The workers unionized for protection, but over time, as their construction methods became outdated and the tricks of their trade were exposed, the Freemasons grew irrelevant. To survive, they had to change the very nature of their organization allowing members to buy into their ranks, despite having no masonry experience. In this way, Freemasonry was able to survive for centuries, and during that time, it evolved from a workers' union to a social club. By the early 1700s, the Freemasons proved to be incredibly appealing for progressives of the Enlightenment era. Men like Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Oscar Wilde were among their most famous members. These men would meet to discuss science, art, and politics. Outside the Freemason lodges, the Enlightenment met scrutiny from the Catholic Church and the general public. But within the lodge walls, these political ideologies were beginning to manifest into something far more concrete and dangerous. They began to imagine a new form of government, 
one that mirrored the ethical code of the Freemasons, that all men were created equal and deserved a voice in their own government. They just needed a new, fledgling nation to build in their image, to test out this radical form of governance. They called for revolution. Freemasonry came to the New World at the turn of the 18th century. Founding father Benjamin Franklin was among the first Americans to be indoctrinated into Freemasonry in Philadelphia in 1731, when he was 25 years old. At the time, gossip began to spring up around this new secret organization. Some had heard whispers of the Freemason lodges in Europe, known largely for their entanglement with the Knights Templar the rogue knights who had been eradicated by the Catholic Church in the 14th century. Others only knew that Freemasonry was cloaked in ritual and operated without adhering to an organized Christian religion. For many, this covert organization was appending the pillars of modest society. Its very existence seemed a threat. Nevertheless, Freemasonry crept its way across the 13 colonies, attracting the same kind of philosophers and individualists as had the lodges in Europe. Both in America and in Europe, Freemason lodges had become a kind of classroom in free thought. The secret society was a place for new ideas on social order to blossom. Issues like governance, democracy, free elections, and revolution echoed through Masonic circles. In the early 18th century, both in Europe and in the colonies, Freemasonry became synonymous with independent, secular governance. Freemasons were known across the Western world for pushing these ideals in political and artistic spaces. But a secular government meant that many religious institutions, one large Roman one in particular, would lose a great deal of power. These new ideas did not sit well with the Vatican. Pope Clement feared Freemasonry. He knew that at its heart, Freemasonry sought to break down religious barriers and unite people under politics, art, and free thinking. It decentralized the need for the church and put the church's absolute authority into question. In 1738, Pope Clement XII issued the first official decree directly attacking Freemasons. He called the Brotherhood counter-church and counter-state, and said that members of the Freemasons, as well as anyone sympathetic to their cause, would be excommunicated from the church and, by extension, society. Open meetings were forbidden, and anyone suspected of being a member could be arrested on the spot. Catholics were expressly forbidden from joining, and given that the grand majority of Europe was Catholic, this meant nearly everyone was forbidden from becoming a Freemason. Once again, the Freemasons were forced to go underground, spreading their ideas in secret, much as they had after the Templar arrest on October 13, 1307. Luckily, the Vatican has vastly underestimated the reach of the Freemasons. Freemasons were already present in every layer of society, from the lowest working class to heads of European monarchies. Their beliefs were still able to travel through royal courts and peasant markets alike, reaching the most elite circles in Europe. British ambassadors spread Masonic values through France, Scandinavia, Germany, and Eastern Europe. It spurred on the middle class, who wanted to overthrow the church-run governments and replace them with a democratic regime. A great sense of nationalism was on the rise all over Europe. It was something that had been slowly brewing through many centuries of religious and aristocratic oppression. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the rest of the episode. 
Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In their study, The Psychology of Revolution, scholars Gustave Le Bon and Bernard Mial discussed the steps that must occur for a revolution to break out. Paramount to the process is the ability to spread information and discuss new ideals. During the Enlightenment, Masonic lodges provided a space for such information to gain a foothold. So whether Freemasons actually conspired to incite revolution is largely left to conspiracy theorists. But by connecting people with similar ideals and political beliefs, the lodges made revolution possible. They provided a space for meeting, conversing, and planning government takeovers. And their presence in almost every Western country certainly helped the quick spread of revolutionary ideals and ensuing wars. Nowhere was this more prevalent than in the 13 colonies that would later form the United States. December 1773, at the Green Dragon Tavern in Boston, in the back of the tavern, in a private room, a small group of Freemasons meet. This tavern is their lodge. Among the men present are Paul Revere, who would later make a famous ride through the Massachusetts countryside, warning Minutemen that British troops were moving in. John Hancock was also present that night, known by many as the first signer of the Declaration of Independence. He also had the largest signature on the document, musing that when King George opened the declaration, Hancock wanted the king to be able to read his signature first, and without his spectacles. But all that was over two years away. This cold winter night in 1773, the men concluded their lodge meeting early. The logbook gives the reason, quote, Lodge adjourned on account of few brothers present. Consignees of tea took the brethren's time, end quote. At the same time, across town, a group of Freemasons, dressed like Mohawk Native Americans, had snuck onto a British cargo ship. After years of growing angry against unfair British taxes, these Masons had decided it was high time they did something about it. That night, under the cover of darkness, they threw the entire cargo load of tea into the river. This act of covert sabotage could have gotten them sent to prison for the rest of their days had they ever gotten caught. But instead, this group of Masons who gathered at the Green Dragon Lodge would become leaders of a revolutionary movement that sparked to life in Boston, but would spread to every colony in the New World. It is perhaps the most famous Masonic event, and even today's Masons will concur that there is substantial evidence to support the claim that the Boston Tea Party, as this event would come to be known, was indeed the doing of a Masonic Lodge. As the flame of revolution was fanned across the colonies, representatives came together to decide the fate of their relationship with England. In September 1774, the Continental Congress met in Philadelphia for the first time. Among their ranks were nine confirmed Freemasons, including Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock. They plotted a course of diplomatic action to take against the crown— They demanded representation in government and planned for retaliation if their demands were not met. After two years of inaction, and in some cases, aggression from King George, the Continental Congress moved toward war. But this posed a new problem. All 13 colonies had to be in favor of going to war. According to John Adams, if unless they acted as a united country, their revolution would fail and the crown would become nothing less than tyrannical. 
Luckily, Freemasonry had saved them once again. The Boston Tea Party and subsequent military occupation of Boston had ignited the people against Great Britain and rallied support around the cause. In the spring of 1776, the Continental Congress had the necessary support to declare war. They began to draft a Declaration of Independence and for the first time were charged with outlining the ideals that would define their new nation. They wanted this document to be more than a declaration of war. They wanted it to show the king who they were going to become, what they were fighting for. Benjamin Franklin and his fellow Masons looked towards the ideals of their lodges and Masonic oaths for the answer. Over the course of many months, Thomas Jefferson scribed countless drafts of the Declaration of Independence, and so many changes were made to the document that the first draft looked nothing like the version sent to the English court, except one line crafted by Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin that never changed from its initial inception. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These Masonic ideals would go on to define one of the most powerful nations in history. We'll learn more about how the Freemasons embedded their beliefs into the founding of the United States in a moment. Now, back to the story. On July 4, 1776, the Continental Congress gathered in Philadelphia to sign the Declaration of Independence. It's important to remember that at the time, Congress understood that it had a very narrow path to victory. It seemed nearly impossible that a ragtag volunteer army could defeat the greatest military force in the world. For the 56 men who signed the document, they were essentially signing their death warrants. Among them were nine confirmed Masons, but as many as 50 signers of the Declaration of Independence have been linked to Freemasonry and could very well have been active members. It's no exaggeration to say that the United States was founded almost exclusively by Freemasons, not only in governance, but also as revolutionary leaders who rallied the public in support of war. Years later, in 1818, President John Adams would write of the events in 1776 as, quote, perhaps a singular example in the history of mankind. Thirteen clocks have been made to strike together, a perfection of mechanism which no artist had ever before effected, end quote. Thirteen clocks striking at once, marking a moment that would change the world. The Freemasons had helped to launch a revolution that no monarchy in the world thought could be won. Suddenly overthrowing these tyrannical monarchs was possible. And Freemasons were part of every aspect of the American Revolution. Benjamin Franklin is perhaps one of the most well-known Freemasons in history. He first became a Mason in 1731 in Pennsylvania at the age of 25 and was active in the Brotherhood for 60 years until his death in 1790. In 1734, Franklin was responsible for the first Masonic book published in the United States, aptly called Mason Book. It was essentially a reprinting of Anderson's Constitutions, a collection of essays written by a Freemason in England in 1721, outlining the values and priorities of the fraternity. 
During his time in Europe, Benjamin Franklin became one of the very first Americans to be admitted into the Nine Muses of Paris, one of the most important Masonic lodges in Europe. He was also known to be very close with Voltaire, one of the most influential writers and philosophers of the Enlightenment. Franklin became Grand Master of the Philadelphia Masonic Lodge upon his return to the U.S. and started actively recruiting members. And as the colonies moved towards war, he moved to retain the secular nature of the Freemasonry and the foundations of this new nation. In fact, while Congress was editing a draft of the Declaration of Independence, Franklin was bothered by the word sacred, which he replaced with the more secular self-evident. After eight years of war led by Freemason George Washington, the United States officially won its independence in 1783. And now Freemasons could shape an entire country to suit their beliefs. The Freemasons in the U.S. Congress now found themselves in a unique position, able to shape a new nation under whatever values they held most dear. They were also charged with building a new capital. George Washington was very involved in the construction and development of the new capital city that bore his name. He hired Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, a French-American war veteran and fellow Freemason, to design a geometrically perfect city as homage to the values of Freemasonry. The square is one of the most important Masonic symbols. It represents those who are square of actions and virtue, meaning honest and fair. Washington asked for the district to be built on an exact 10-mile square to remind the governing body of their responsibility to the American people. L'Enfant added radial streets shooting out of the capital, hearkening to the compass, the Masonic symbol representing the spirituality of man. Many people believe there are other Masonic symbols hidden in the Washington, D.C. city grid, but we can't confirm that. By 1817, the U.S. had its second Masonic president, James Monroe. Before the century was over, six more Freemasons took the Oval Office— Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, James A. Garfield, and William McKinley. At this point in their history, Freemasonry was still very much an elite group of political thinkers that had climbed to the height of world power. But that power soon began to corrupt their virtue. Freemasonry became less about the values of equality and freedom and more about retaining control over the country, allowing access to only an elite few. And if someone threatened to expose their secrets, more often than not, they disappeared. By the start of the 19th century, the Freemasons had transformed into a social group for the intellectual elites of Europe and were positioned in the highest political and social roles in the newly formed United States. Freemasonry was still shrouded in relative secrecy. While the existence of their group was common knowledge, they still tried to keep the rituals, codes, and rules of membership as secret as possible. But in 1826, someone violated that trust. William Morgan was a family man living in Batavia, New York. In 1825, he joined the Leroy Western Star chapter of the New York Masonic Lodges. He claimed to have been a captain during the War of 1812 and that he was made a master mason while living in Canada, though there were no records to support either of these claims. He immediately became an active lodge member, 
curious and eager to learn about Freemason history, rituals, and codes. But for some members, he was too eager. They sensed that something was off, and they were right. Morgan was a spy. In 2010, psychiatrist Dr. David L. Charney published a study entitled True Psychology of the Insider Spy, in which he dissected and analyzed the behavior of people who were hired to infiltrate large organizations. Morgan was a textbook case. Morgan showed too much enthusiasm from the get-go. He went out of his way to visit other lodges in the area, tried to gain their trust, and unsuccessfully attempted to establish a lodge of his own. Charney describes this as the post-recruitment stage, in which a spy that has been admitted into their target organization feels relief or even euphoria at his ability to gain admittance into the club. At this point, it seems as though all the spies' plans are coming together, and they can be overly enthusiastic or confident. Often their commitment is what will raise the most red flags, their need to prove their loyalty. And unfortunately for Morgan, this held true. The other members didn't trust him. His stories didn't always line up, and they were suspicious about his claims of an impressive past he couldn't prove. The constant backlash from other members eventually wore Morgan down. Charney calls this the remorse stage, when the operative realizes his plans have failed and gives up the jig. Morgan finally broke down and revealed that he was planning on publishing a book called Illustrations of Masonry, exposing and detailing the work of their organization. Morgan admitted he was working alongside a local newspaper publisher named David Cade Miller and was promised one-fourth of the future book's profits. Miller himself had been a Mason, reaching apprentice level, but was kicked out of the group for behavioral issues. He and Morgan had signed a penal bond with the investors of the project, in which they would be fined a half a million dollars if the book was not completed. But unfortunately for Morgan, the Freemasons had an equally vested interest in his silence. We'll learn how far the Freemasons would go to secure their power in just a moment. Now back to the story. In 1826, a spy named William Morgan unsuccessfully attempted to infiltrate the Freemasons and expose their secrets to the world. He outed himself and his publisher, and the Freemasons promised revenge. A few weeks later, Miller's newspaper office mysteriously caught on fire. Then, on September 11, 1826, William Morgan was put in jail for a trivial charge of stealing a shirt and tie. Miller bailed Morgan out of jail, but he was rearrested weeks later for failing to pay a $2 bar tab. A few days later, four Freemasons convinced one of the jail guards, also thought to have been a Mason, to release Morgan to them. The Masons grabbed Morgan, who pleaded with them to let him go. They walked Morgan to a carriage and drove him away. It was the last time he was ever seen. It's not clear what exactly happened to Morgan after that. Some say he was taken to the Niagara River and put in a body bag and drowned. Others say he was paid a large amount of money to disappear in Canada. Like so many things in Mason history, the truth was buried among their dark secrets. But despite the Mason's best efforts, soon after Morgan's disappearance, Miller published his book anyway. It became an instant bestseller, with interest fueled by the mysterious disappearance of its author. Public outrage spread quickly, both about the Masons' role in Morgan's disappearance 
and the fact that they were never punished. Worse, they were aided and abetted by the police. The Freemasons became synonymous with kidnapping and murder. Suddenly, people grew suspicious of the police and other public officials holding government office. Who exactly was governing their cities? Rumors began to spread that the Masons operated above the law. They couldn't be held accountable because police were giving their fellow Masons a free pass. The Morgan affair stank of corruption and violence and had far-reaching repercussions. Across the country, the general public began to protest the Freemasons and began excommunicating any members that lived in their communities. Some lodges tried to distance themselves from the Morgan affair to no avail. To the public, Freemasons everywhere were guilty of murder, and who knew what else? Across the country, men suspected of being Freemasons were denied public services and entrance to shops and markets. Their children were denied education. Membership declined radically. Less than a decade after becoming the most powerful group in the nation, Grand Lodges decided to stop meeting. Their organization was in danger of disappearing again. The Freemasons needed a strategy, a way to combat the witch hunt that was threatening to eradicate them. In order to help Freemasonry's reputation, the organization started pouring money into public services and charity groups. And while this charitable phase seemed to work, it took until the 1860s for Freemasons to begin to rebuild. But the organization was still about to undergo one final makeover, one that would undo all the efforts to reform the group's image, one that would drive Freemasonry back into the world of mysticism and conspiracy theories. Albert Pike was born on December 29, 1809 in Boston, the oldest of six children. He quickly proved himself to be a capable child, and as he grew older, his parents recognized him as a genius. In fact, he was accepted to Harvard at 17, but couldn't afford to go. Pike was said to be able to read and write in 16 languages, though little proof backs up that claim. He's also been widely accused of plagiarism. So while he was still a genius, it's more likely he was a con man than an actual scholar. In the early 1850s, Pike became a Freemason and quickly rose through the ranks at his local lodge. He became fairly well-known in the Mason community as a smart, active Mason dedicated to the cause. In fact, he was promoted to sovereign master commander of his lodge in 1859. But beyond the lodges of the U.S., trouble was brewing. The country was being ripped apart over continued use of slavery. And as brothers prepared to fight one another all over the country, the Freemasons were forced to examine what brotherhood truly meant to them. Despite being from the North, Albert Pike served as brigadier general in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He proved a capable leader who inspired his men to fight. But his military career was short-lived. He was forced to resign in 1862, amidst rumors that he had ordered his troops to scalp Native people they captured. After the war, he was convicted of treason. But on April 22, 1866, President Andrew Jackson gave Pike a full pardon. Jackson, too, was a Freemason and wanted to help his brother escape the gallows. Jackson even invited Pike to the White House the day after he was released from prison. From there, much of what is known about Pike's life is rumor. Some believe that in the 1860s, he was a top leader in the Ku Klux Klan. Others believe he threw himself into the occult, becoming a Satanist and devil worshiper. 
But what is certain is that throughout the 1870s and 80s, he was one of the top-ranking Freemasons in the country. Pike devoted 32 years of his life to Freemasonry, most of which were spent redesigning and redeveloping the rituals of his lodge. He became one of the most influential Freemasons in history. Pike was drawn to the early mysticism of the Knights Templar and King Solomon's Temple. He romanticized the esoterica and coding of this dark period in Masonic history and began linking tradition and symbolism within his lodge to this early mystic time. He began to undermine the political and charitable work of the Freemasons in favor of what many believed was witchcraft. In 1871, Pike published a book entitled Morals and Dogma of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. It's almost a thousand pages long, divided into 33 essays, which provide context and details of the several degrees of Masonry membership. However, unlike William Morgan's tell-all expose, it was written without revealing any secrets and could only be fully understood by people in the know. It was in circulation and regularly reprinted for nearly a century, all the way to 1969. In this book, Pike argued that true Freemasonry combined the theories and mythologies of various ancient religions, astrology, myths, and legends. He claimed that the book would hint to or shed light on the true nature and secrets of Freemasonry, the divine knowledge that God had given King Solomon and the widow's son to build his perfect temple. Pike radically transformed the system for Masonic initiation and degrees. He described 33 ranks of Masonry that evolved from the original three, apprentice, fellow, and master. Soon the entire southern jurisdiction of Freemasonry, which he oversaw, would adopt this method of membership ranking. Every new member of his lodges would receive a copy of the book upon initiation. This tradition lasted well into the 1970s. The implementation of Pike's book created a schism in American Freemasonry. The majority of lodges bought into his new beliefs, but many of them decided to disassociate themselves with him, especially given Pike's murky past and the rumors of witchcraft and devil worship that followed him. But Pike's influence was great, and soon the general public once again began to associate Freemasons with witchcraft, devil worship, and the Ku Klux Klan. This only reconjured animosity about the Morgan affair. Rumors spread that Freemasons used black magic to control the government and were plotting world domination. It was an image they still haven't been able to fully shake. It doesn't help that across the pond, Freemasons were being associated with other dark dealings. In 1888, London was stalked by a mysterious, vicious figure who would leave five women dead. He strangled them and mutilated their bodies, leaving their entrails for others to find. He would earn the moniker Jack the Ripper and would become one of the most famous cold cases in history. Nothing is known about this serial killer, although much is suspected. They believe he could have been a wealthy man who solicited sex from the sex workers he gored. Some believe he later moved to the United States and became H.H. Holmes' serial killer of the World Fair. But a select few believe that Jack the Ripper was actually a Freemason, responsible for one of the most explosive cover-ups in history. Masonic symbolism was extracted from the corpse of Jack the Ripper's first victim, Catherine Eddowes. 
two upside-down Vs were carved into her cheeks, which put together create an M for Mason. Second, Catherine's murder was committed in Mitre Square, a place of geographic importance to the Freemasons. And third, part of her apron was removed. The apron referenced part of the Masonic uniform. That piece of apron was later recovered in a stairwell on Gloucester Street. It was covered in blood, having been used to wipe down the murder weapon as he ran from the murder scene. Above the apron, someone had scrolled a very cryptic message. There is some discrepancy, but the message either said, quote, the Jews are not the men who will not be blamed for nothing, or the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing, end quote. To some, these words are an echo of the most important ritual in Masonic history, the killing of the widow's son. In the pageant, three Freemasons pretend to be the men who murdered Hiram Abiff, head architect to King Solomon's temple. The police quickly erased the message, despite it being a key piece of evidence. Could they too have been Freemasons, eager to cover their tracks? And more importantly, why would Jack the Ripper connect himself to such a cult? At the time, it was rumored that Catherine Eddowes was mistress to the Duke of Clarence, heir to the throne of England. Not only was she his lover, but she was pregnant with his child. When the Freemasons discovered that the crown was threatened by this lowly shop girl, they chose to protect their country and their fellow Mason, Duke of Clarence, by sending the palace surgeon to attack Eddowes. The surgeon's name was Sir William Gull, while this theory might seem absurd, it is worth noting that the lacerations on Catherine Edo's corpse were many, but cut with learned precision. As for the other four victims, perhaps it was a copycat murder. Perhaps the Duke of Clarence had more extracurricular activities than expected. Or maybe after Edo's, Sir William Gull realized that he liked killing. But all of these theories and connections to the occult are circumstantial and buried far in Freemasonry past. These days, the group prides itself of increased transparency. They're largely a charity organization and work to push their members to become better men, better fathers, and better citizens. Lodges organize guest receptions on a regular basis, where interested people are invited or freely attend open seminars. A Masonic Lodge won't solicit members. A potential member must seek membership of their own free will. Prospective members must also prove that they are free from addictions and dependencies and have a good social reputation and stable financial situation. Members must also express a belief in the existence of a supreme being, a requirement that has been central to Freemasonry since its earliest iterations. The initiation ceremony still holds an essential role in the organization. New members are asked to reenact the murder of the widow's son before they're inducted, as a way of paying homage to what Masons believe is their moral code. In general, lodges are still self-governed and hold elections for local officials. They're overseen by regional lodges and a larger Grand Lodge. The Freemasons are an ancient organization, one of the few that was able to survive to modern day. And with six million current members, it's clear the Freemasons have only just begun to fight. Their legacy is emblazoned on almost every government building in the country, almost every medieval cathedral in Europe. They've made their mark on the very face of our society. Their ideals have founded entire republics. Presidents, musicians, artists, philosophers. 
these men have all proudly carried on Masonic ideals, passing them on to the next generation. And while they certainly have more storms to weather, if there's one thing this group has proven, it's their ability to adapt, survive, outlast. Whether they're hiding in the shadows or in plain sight, they will always be there, just out of reach. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Jorge Molina and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.